From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in radio podcast land. It is I, your faithful moderator, Justin Russell. And it is time for Backroom Politics. In studio with me, I have the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He served at last count under four presidencies, the one that we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my left, ironically, he is the former Joe Biden political operative that we're not thoroughly convinced is not still working for him, but he's also a lawyer in Washington, D.C., in the great state of Maryland. He's Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. You're a bit out of order saying uh, saying that. But What's that? I'm a, I'm a little bit what? Out of order. What do you mean? I'm just making a lawyer joke. Okay, there we go. About uh, one, joining us on the big screen <laughs> from the great city of New York, the Big Apple, from the heart of the financial district, she is the former lawyer of the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign in the great state of Ohio. She's Sharmila Chari. Hey, Sharmila. Hola, Justin. And joining us from an undisclosed location in southern New England, he is the former Huffington Post contributing writer and author of several books, including Politics on American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Rich Rabino. Hello, Richard. Hello. And behind the screen, we've got our host here at Podcast Village, Charlie Burney, who's running the boards for us. And, of course, keeping us all honest is our producer, Eric Thomas. Uh, first of all, that beer – all right, Charlie – is it, for those who don't know about our podcast, first of all, Podcast Village is a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, benevolent host, and feeds our people beer, if we so choose. Mm, what beer. is the beer? What it eases is, the pain. It does. Mm. What is the beer that you're drinking that was sounded so horrible? Uh, the Catawba Island Brewing Company Hot Blonde Mango Habanero Blonde Ale. Mango Habanero Blonde Ale. I, I don't know. Charlie, Justin. where are we getting this? Uh, this is just from secret sources. Good secret Lord, sources. that sounds horrible. <laughs> Am I going to no go wonder. blind after having this, <laughs> it Charlie? Like something I would clean my toilet with. I'm not willing to comment on that. So. That or a dip. <laughs> it sounds like a dip I would drink or eat at, at uh, Cinco de Mayo. But anyway, uh, that being the case, although, Sharmila, you said it was sounded like a margarita? It did sound like a tasty margarita. For, for what it's worth, uh, it says Ohio Craft Beer on the side of it. Wow. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's it's just for you. So much for that sponsorship. Okay, <laughs> let's let's talk about some serious stuff for a second because there is some serious stuff going on uh, here in the United States right now. The immigration situation is an absolute mess. I mean, to call it a humanitarian crisis isn't doing it justice on how bad it is. Uh, calling Customs and Border Protection an agency in utter chaos is not doing it justice. Uh, there's a big problem here. It was reported over the weekend that at a Border Patrol facility in Clint, Texas, on the southern border, conditions of hundreds of children not being able to sleep, not given soap, not given toothbrushes, toothpaste, the ability to actually have hygienic situations to to 
uh, clean themselves. It basically got out of control and became a catastrophe. Since that story has run, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, or Border Protection through the Border Patrol, have removed those children from the facility in Clint and put them in, this is their words, not mine, other tent camp facilities with better capacity to hold them. Uh, as still a re- separated from their parents. Still separated. There's there's that question, too, which we will get to. Uh, it has been a PR nightmare for the department and for the administration. That being said, uh, Customs and Border Protection now is basically on their own. As of this afternoon, there was the... Uh, There was the departure of the acting commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, who had only been in office, no kidding, less than 60 days. And he has now announced his departure as of July 5th, which means that there has been no leader named by the White House to even replace the acting guy who replaced the acting Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, it's, it's, it's bizarre, and, and, it, and it's not getting any better. But the bigger problem is, how do we have such chaos in leadership, and how do we let such a humanitarian situation develop on our own borders Inside a federal law enforcement facility. Sharma, how shocked are you by this? I mean, sadly, both horrified and shocked, but also not surprised at all. The Trump administration has, you know, made a continuous policy and sort of almost rallying cry around dehumanizing migrants, migrants and those seeking refuge in the United States. So it's not at all surprising that the conditions for these migrants that are, you know, being forced into these detention centers are, you know, not adequate, that they're not, you know, given the sufficient resources to keep the facilities clean, sanitary, to give people the basics that they need, not only for their health and safety, but for their, to maintain their dignity. It's not as horrible as it is to read these reports. Um, And one of them was made uh, by a woman who ran the, who runs the um, kind of immigrant and refugee clinic at my, my uh, alma mater, Columbia Law School. Um, it's it's not at all surprising to me that the Trump administration would allow this to happen under their watch. Dan Lipner, go ahead. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take umbrage with with the order that the questions were laid out. That it was a PR, a PR nightmare and the lack of leadership and all that. Um, let's be clear: this is not just a, a a PR nightmare that is based on an actual nightmare for these migrants. More importantly, and to the top of that list, children. Some of those children are very young. And when I say very young, I mean less than 10 years old, some of them less than a year old. The the idea that this administration is nonchalantly dealing with this, which in any other context would be considered child neglect or child abuse, is unfathomable. I understand the take that some Americans have against the adults who are crossing the border illegally in some cases. I get that. What I don't understand is how you can look the other way for children who were most certainly 
for the most part, especially for the youngest ones, brought here not of their own volition but because their parents brought them, were separated from their parents, and were han- and are being handled, at present tense, horribly under the auspices of being strong against illegal immigration. It is horrendous. Here's, here's my conflict. There's blame. There's a lot of finger pointing and blame going around, and I'm not hearing solutions. I hear a lot of people blaming the Border Patrol agents and the Border Patrol leadership at that station in Clint, Texas. I, it's the head I, of the beast. I, it's the administration. I, I, but, but here's the thing is, there's a lot of people pointing fingers saying, how can you do that? Those are people that have kids themselves, and yet they allow these kids to be in this situation. The child separation policy did not need to occur. Does the finger pointing this... go back to the administration? Alan Moore. Well, there's plenty of blame to go around, but let's acknowledge the fact that we are completely and totally unprepared to deal with 100,000 arrivals per month. We don't have the facilities for adults. We don't have the facilities for kids. The, the, the system is overwhelmed. The situation at Clint, there, there's a second story about what's going on at Clint, whether it's as absolutely horrendous as it's, as it's been said or just really bad, and that's no defense, uh, it, it, but, there's, but there is pushback on some of the facts. 300 people were, these 300 kids were taken away from, the, from that facility yesterday. 100 came back today. They don't they were taken have away places after they were caught they, 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 and publicly they, outed. Well, so fine. So what about the other thousands, Dan? Is this accurate representation of everything that happens everywhere? Was this uh, an outlier? We don't have the good facts. One because thing, this administration what, is consistently can, turning people d- d- away. Dan, well, let, him, Dan, let him finish. Let him finish. Let him finish. The investigation Dan, needs to be public. Dan, let him so, finish. Hold so on. Fine. Hold on. But can we acknowledge that there hasn't been a full and complete investigation? Some people got into one facility. Their report is is in dispute. I'm not saying it's wrong. All I'm saying is you can't take one possible outlier and, and draw conclusions when we've got 100,000 arrivals each month. This outlier these should kids, not be existing. These kids, fine, Dan, then join the join, go work for them and see if you can fix it. There are a lot of really good-hearted, uh, patriotic people who are trying to make this work, and it's and it's overwhelming to them. That's not that. That's an explanation. I, that well, doesn't no, mean it's this is not a issue, not a humanitarian issue. So, 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 so the, the, you've the, acknowledged the on the thing, show. The other thing about about the 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 situation of separation. Most of these children now were in, didn't arrive with parents, and if they were separated from parents it was because there was there were there were warrants for the arrest of the parents most of them came with Look. relatives with other people they can't establish the, you know they, they they can't establish identity i'm just saying we have to be careful when we describe what went on and be as accurate as we can and and it and and we've said on the show Look. many times yes it's a humanitarian crisis today the house of representatives will pass a 4.5 Five billion dollar emergency appropriation for humanitarian crisis unfolding at the border. The Senate has said, send your bill over here. 
this is urgent. We want to get legislation passed that the president Going to have will, the president, as Dan pointed we out. We don't know what the president will do until we see what the, the, one se- thing I am going to the say Senate is- does. Let's not, let's, let's not assume we know what's going to happen to this until we see what the Senate does and what the president gets. What I am going to, what I am going to say is the fact that, and, and, and for full disclosure, I, 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 work, I continue to work very closely with the uh, Department of Homeland Security, Customs Border Protection, and the folks at Border Patrol. I am not going to allow the disparagement. We are basically dealing with a rudderless ship here. You've got an acting customs and border patrol on the show. No, 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 no. I'm not, not. I'm not saying you, but there are a lot of people in the media that are publicly disparaging the job and the hard job that the border patrol has. This is a thankless job, and it's a no-win situation for them. On top of the fact, and this is where I do blame the administration. You have a acting homeland security secretary who isn't going to make large-scale changes to anything because he's acting. And, who's, who's, but why is the acting secretary there? Why was the previous secretary chased out of the job? Regardless, it doesn't no, no, matter. That, that is important. No, no, it, That's it's an not important, important point. Because what we because have because right this now, president doesn't think Nielsen was it, tough it, enough it, on on people crossing can, the border. You could have put in Dopey and still have the same reactions of this administration because they changed. They don't understand the immigration situation that is currently underway on our southern border. It is, we created this. Americans created the situation on the southern border. This administration created the situation on the southern border. Uh, yeah, that, that is that, that, absolutely, that, that's actually a little bit of a bridge. That's a bridge. That, nice that, that, that's nice a bridge too, that, I'm actually going to be on Alan's side here. <laughs> Why that's, is that's, that? that's now a bridge too far. Why is that a bridge too far? The, the crisis that was created is because of the crisis in these immigrants' home countries. They are, they are fleeing the chaos and horrors that are there. No, yeah. no, no. Hold on, oh hold on, Charmla. Hold on, Charmla. I'll, I'll give Charmla. Uh, Charmla, no, no, go no. ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish no, your no, thought. No, no. I'll let Charmla finish that point. All right, Charmla, go ahead. No, I was going to say, right? I mean, you can't blame entire America entirely for what's going on in the Golden Triangle, but part of the reason that there is this, you know, epidemic of crime and unsafe and lack of safety in these Latin American country in these countries is because of the US kind of exporting a lot of these, you know, Salvadorian and Honduran gang members from the West Coast back to these countries where they wreaked havoc in a country, you know, and you know, basically took advantage of the lawlessness and sort of the lack of civil society and lack of governmental infrastructure in these countries to run roughshod over the police, over the judicial system, and over, you know, any sort of government oversight. And, right, that is part, I'm not saying it's the entire reason, but that is part of the reason why this Wait, wait, I, I, and I'm going to defend, I am going to defend Charm on this one, because I'm, you've got a situation where you've got all these people that are moving north because they feel if Trump gets his way and he shuts down the border, which is what they hear in the rhetoric, they're never going to have this opportunity again. If they, what they hear is that the U.S. is shutting down foreign aid to these countries, which desperately need the foreign aid, as we've talked about on the show multiple times. They're hearing it, so it can't be safe for them to stay. So what we've done is we have an administration that is literally, through public relations and news feeds, created a crisis on the southern border that could have been effectively dealt with had they not gone out and blown up foreign policy, foreign aid, and law enforcement assistance to these countries. Am I wrong? You're incomplete. 
you're saying we created this situation and we did not. We contributed to it, but so and, and I'm laughing. I'm chuckling at Charmelin who thinks the people we've deported back to these countries are suddenly in charge and and and, and wrecking havoc. There, all of these things are factors in in the in in the the fundamental disruption of government in those countries whether we have we we and we've we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars a year that money is at risk it's not as though that money doesn't find its way into different people's pockets it's not it's not universally thought of as the best uh, investment i'm perfectly willing to keep up that investment i didn't like the threat to take it away but the it, it and the fact that we that that it's known that we're trying to constrict and constrain uh, the borders yes has contributed uh, to to an increase in people but so has the behavior of the mexicans who basically said come on this way um there, there's wait, a whole wait, 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 wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. A, i think that is understating it we've the mexicans have now agreed under a lot of pressure to modify their behavior when look at the look at the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. This didn't start under Trump. This has been going on for uh, for for wait 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 wait. You can't simply say if you we are, did this. Wait wait wait. If you're Mexican, if you are Mexican Trump. immigration control, and somebody shows up at your southern border and they say, hey. Here is my legitimate identification card as a resident of Honduras. I am only transiting through Mexico to get to the United States. If I'm Mexican immigration control, I'm like, okay, that is your right as a resident of this hemisphere with which we have. I don't think you're correct on that, Justin. I, well, I, I don't I think that the that that Mexican law says, "Hey, we will provide safe transit, maybe even maybe even transport to get you up to America, but you can't stay here." This is part of this whole problem. Wait, can we just rationally look at this for a second? Are we honestly saying that while Mexico is a not as advanced as the United States, but a developing country that is least arguable to say that in the less populated areas of the country, maybe there's a little less government involved and the idea of stopping uh, refugees or immigrants from 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 transiting Mexico might be a little difficult. The idea I, that Mexico yes. was standing yes. up its national guard for the first time on on Mexico's southern border, the the Mexican guard which did not exist prior to this year, this is a thing. So the idea yeah. that that Mexico that had to deport El Chapo to us because he had escaped Al- multiple times Alan Moore from their Rich Rubino. Alan Moore. This is a country yeah. that needs assistance. Alan Moore then Rich. I know they, they might have other priorities. I know they need assistance. I mean, I've been making that point every week after week after week that that rather than threaten. Well, you Mexico- were suggesting that they were opening the doors, saying, "USA, this way, keep going, folks." And and I believe there was a degree of that going on. Absolutely, no, no. no, no question. Oh, about on. it. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the so, people. The people show up at their southern border and they say, "You think, we you don't think, want they, you wait, you think that the Mexican immigration control just threw up their hands and said, hey, you know what? I got an idea. Don't worry about it. Just come on through.' They, they brought they brought in Elon Musk to bring a hyperloop straight from the there southern was. Mexican border <laughs> to Texas. If I could just there, interject. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Richard. Richard Rubino, go, go ahead, ahead real quick. Rich, go yeah, ahead. if I could just interject, taking a little little differently here. 
here. Um, I think that it's actually in terms of cutting aid specifically. I mean, the, the obvious answer in terms of why you have this problem is the economic situations in these Central American countries. The best way to ameliorate it is that they get jobs, they get, high, they get well-paying jobs, people can provide for their families in those countries. But, you know, it, Donald Trump's modus operandi is to essentially is to, con is to do the exact opposite. I mean, just look at what he did, for example, um, in 2018 to the Palestinians, for example, you know, when they were having problems between the Palestinians and, Israel, and the Israelis, he said, we're going to cut $200 million in aid to the Palestinians. Now, one, one way to solve, one way to one way to improve the situation, you know, dire where you have where you have where you have where you have outlandish unemployment for the Palestinians, for example, is to say, is to continue to send that aid. You don't send that aid to them. First of all, you get the you, you, you enrage the Palestinians just like you enrage people in Central America, so who of course want to come here. But in that particular case, you enrage the people to say, you know, why are they cutting this off? And you just increase the economic stagnation, the economic problems that are occurring in their country. I can't see necessarily how you're doing anything that's not counterintuitive here. And I also think that it's kind of apropos in a sense, um, you know, disconcerting really that if you look at one of the one of the one of the uh, camps in, that they're that they're, they're using in Oklahoma was actually one of the ones that they used to put for the Japanese internment camps when Franklin Roosevelt and Earl Warren, who was Attorney General of California, I, they sent to Japanese Americans. I, I don't think I don't think they did advance work on that one, Rich. I, I, no. I, I that I that I concur with. But but Sharma, here's here's the bigger question: is you know, now we've gotten ourselves into this vicious hyperloop that says, okay, we've got kids living in squalor at a Border Patrol facility, which, by the way, that Border Patrol facility was never designed to hold that many people, let alone children. And yet we've got an administration that's blowing out foreign aid and economic support and economic development to what one would argue partners in the region— where do we break the cycle of life on this? Going back to points that both you and uh, Dan were making earlier, if you, talk, if you speak to any Border Patrol agent, if you read any of their interviews or, or watch any of them, you know, the first thing they say is we need more resources down here, right? We are trying as hard as we can to deal with this massive inflow. And, and Alan's not wrong that they are seeing levels of immigrants coming in you know, under their, to their care that are unprecedented. They need more resources, right? And if the administration is serious about enforcing this policy then, that they have created, then they would have been directing significantly more resources to these areas that are experiencing these massive influxes of, of migrants and refugees, right? And I understand that, you know, a brand spanking new facility can't be built overnight. It takes time, right? It, they have... They have to be built to certain codes. You need to find the space. There's, there's all kinds of you know, logistical restrictions on being able to build, build these facilities. But without resources, without really concrete resources and the discretion and giving discretion to local authorities on how to best solve this crisis, you're not going to get anywhere. And the incredibly sad thing about this is that you also get the feeling that the administration wants to use this as a deterrent, right? They are not actually that unhappy that, you know, migrants are and migrant children are living in this squalor because they think that if the word of this filters down to the migrants who are currently on their way or sitting in Honduras thinking about coming to the United States, that they won't, that they'll change their mind, that they'll say, well, if I go to the U.S., I'm just going to be, you know, housed in one of these horrible housing these horrible conditions as well. So it's not worth it. I'll just stay where I am. All right, Dan it's, it's, it's not just the feeling uh the administration has said so explicitly. Uh, 
including the the former attorney general, has said so explicitly. This has been widely reported that this is the goal of this administration. If you make it horrible enough, people won't come. In spite of all of the evidence, and I literally mean all the evidence, since we've all agreeing on that numbers are going up, not down. Some of this news must have been reported back to the home countries of where these people are coming from. Yet the horrors of where they are coming from still exceed the horrors that could be present upon them upon arrival to the United States. By the way, and by the way, if you want proof that no matter how miserable and how bad it is. People will still come, no matter how deplorable the, the the conditions are. Hundreds of thousands of people ride the New York City subway every day. Okay, they no, still no, come no, to no, that. No, no, I'm actually not going to go with that joke there. Because no, 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 no. We need to dial no. this back a second Sir. here because when we're talking about all of this, and for all of the grandeur and marvelousness of this country that this president will tout till the end of time. Are we honestly saying that we cannot find a solution to at least deal with the kids properly? The, it, and, uh, let's just simply carve that the out. Kids. No, it's no, not I, just the I, kids. I, what I'm suggesting is how about we just come up with a solution to deal with the kids properly? And I'm agreeing with you that the Border Patrol agents, they are the tip of the spear that is being poorly we, we financed still have along not talked the way. About, we still have there not is, talked about – There is a, a solution. We are Hold still on. the most prosperous country we in the world. We still have not talked about – We could about, find a way to solve this problem. We still have not talked about the – one agency that has still, I don't even know if they're even part of this emergency package, and that's the Department of Health and Human Services that is, that is, that is chartered to deal with these types of children. Am I wrong, Alan? They get them from Department of Homeland Security. Right. Homeland Security receives them and then typically passes Trans them, them on. We are them not hearing about... Uh, the these kinds of conditions and disasters, but the uh, f- from from H- from people who have been transferred over to HHS, which which is important and they useful, just lose them there. Which no, they don't lose them. I mean, there's some who that we're, we're talking about tens of thousands uh, uh, of people. I'm not defending every last thing, but the controversy is at the right. f- at the first intake. And kids who are not supposed to be in a place more than three days, and when they're there a week or two, I agree. And 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 oh, in in facilities for less capacity, problems emerge. I agree. That was that's the last word. Hey, when we come back, we got a special guest. We have the uh, Democratic candidate for State Senate District Twenty Six out in West Des Moines, Iowa. She was part of the big blue wave out there. We're going to get her take on what it's like to be blue in a red state when we come back. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we are back for this edition of Backroom Politics. Hey, joining me on the line, or joining us on the line, I should say, uh, she is a Democratic political operative who has now decided to take on the role as candidate for the state Senate seat for District 22, which is West Des Moines. Uh, she is the one we know as Trisha Gavin. Trisha, how are you? 
Well, hello, Justin. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on your program. So for full disclosure for everybody, because we like try and be uh, transparent here, uh, Trish, Trisha Gavin has been a, a friend of mine for many years. We were work colleagues at a, a company here in Washington, D.C., when she was here, uh, and I am a supporter of her campaign. Again, full disclosure. Uh, but we, we want to talk to Tricia today about what it's like being blue in a red state and the challenges that come with that. Uh, Tricia, let's go back to 2018 first, because you were part of that operation that drove a lot of those congressional districts around the urban areas around Des Moines and some of the other larger cities, turning them from red to blue. How difficult was that? And what what, what drove that? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had the opportunity, especially out here in the western suburbs, to get involved with some of the campaigns. And I think it just was, you know, people are ready for change, especially in the suburbs, right? Um, so they were, you know, people are sick of uh, politicians making healthcare decisions for women and special interests kind of leading the show. So I think after two years of kind of what everybody had been up against, it was like time out. It's time to get involved. And so that's really when I started to to join the fight and um Joined the joined the blue wave, and we got a couple of amazing female uh, congressional candidates elected. And my district, in particular, uh, turned blue with a couple of freshman House reps as well. So, when when we're talking about the 2018 midterms there in the, in the suburbs of, in your case, Des Moines. Ew. One would think that you're talking about, even though somewhat urban, there's still a very much rural aspect to the surrounding areas to your districts. Uh, these are farmers. These are labor union members, blue-collar, middle-income players. How much of a factor was Donald Trump in the blue wave for where you were, and how deep did that go? Well, I, you know, I can speak for myself and at least a lot of the women around. Um, I definitely think that played a role um, in, in kind of helping people say, "All right, we need to we need to pivot here and actually do something." Um, growing up in the state of Iowa, I grew up in Cedar Rapids, but as you mentioned, I left for about eighteen years to build my resume um, with the goal of always landing back in Iowa to help make a difference. I noticed a big shift from growing up to what it is now, you know, seeing some of that D.C. politics, seeing some of the rhetoric from the Donald Trump-isms, if you will, and that didn't feel right to me. Um, And I think that's the same with a lot of my neighbors, right? I mean, there is something really, really, really special about the Midwest. And we are at risk of having some of that taken away by what's happened since 2016. Right. But, Tricia, if you look at the demographics, for, for example, in the, in, the, in the congressional districts around Des Moines, a lot of the women that you would consider either moderate Republican or, in many instances, moderate Democrats, blue-collar, middle-income Democratic mm-hmm. women, voted for Trump in, in 2016 did is it a matter of that they are just disillusioned, frustrated with what they saw come out in the two years between then and, and the midterms? 
You know, yeah, it's probably a combination of that. I mean, I understand wanting change, right? And I think, you know, that was the candidate, right? So, I mean, I, I can definitely understand that. But you've got things like the Me Too movement and you've got equality and some of the things that Iowa pioneered, right? And I think enough is kind of enough. We're seeing that money isn't being spent on things that are important to women and, quite frankly, a lot of people in the suburbs when it relates to education, healthcare, um, you name it, right? So I think enough is enough. And I think a lot of people are, are finding that democratic values and moral belief systems is kind of where it's at. So, um, you know, I think it's a combination of things. Did you have something, Dan? Yeah. So in in Iowa, so it, I was just pull, pulling it up, and I honestly had forgotten that uh, Brandstadt was no longer governor. And uh, I mistakenly, looking at it, thought Kim Reynolds was actually the Democrat when, in fact, she's the Republican. So the the uh, the governor of the state. So the question is, what makes Iowa Iowa? From my time there in, in Iowa with the Biden campaign, I always thought of Iowa as a a a state full of practical folks that ideologues weren't really welcome. Uh, is that part of the issue, or is there something else that's going on in the Midwest, more more specifically in Iowa? Um, you know, no, I think I think people are just becoming more in tune and aware to kind of what is going on. Right, we live in such a digital age that I think people are consuming information differently and we're talking about things differently. So I think those Iowa values are still there. I just think it's an awakening from people in Iowa. And I feel like we might be just a smidge behind um, based on some of the, some of the experiences I've, I've had, but I definitely think um, we're, we're just more in tune and people are more engaged now going into 2020. No, if I could ask a question. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Rich Rubino. Yeah, one thing I've always been fascinated about Iowa specifically, because I know it's a showdown state, but they always had Tom Harkin, one of the most liberal senators in the country, and then they had, and then they would elect Chuck Grassley, one of the most conservative Republicans in the United States Senate. I'm wondering what, 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 why, why would a state elect somebody that are that are so ideologically opposite, and also, well, how can somebody like say Steve King, for example, get elected? Oh boy, you are <laughs> you are responsible Sorry. for Steve King. <laughs> I'm not blaming you for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're asking some really good questions. And, I mean, I think, right, when you look at the, you know, rural populations, I definitely think that we've got to make sure we're hearing their voices, right? It's such a huge part of our economy. It's such a huge part of what we're founded on. So I think making sure that there's that balance that we're listening to everybody and people like myself, people like Cindy Axne, Abby Finkenauer, you're going to kind of hear and see that. So I think just making sure that we bring everybody to the table so that we don't see those such large pivots, um, you know, could certainly help someone like Steve King. I don't know. That's a tough part of the state. There's a lot of really amazing people there that I'm not sure are necessarily aligned with those ideologies. Um, J.D. Shulton, you know, made up a huge difference by kind of closing the gap there. So, yep, yep. so there's, there's room to move, and I think you're seeing kind of that shift. But, I mean, those are all really good questions, and I 
I don't know what makes everyone tick there, but I definitely think from my standpoint, it's making sure we take into account every single person. We've got more of that moderate Dem in office that can relate and work across the aisle. And I mean, Justin said, I worked in D.C., I worked in business transformation and Coast Guard acquisition, you name it. So I, I kind of play at that level. So that's why I think this is a good good position for me to to run on. So, okay. Tricia, let me ask this. <clears throat> you, you talk about... <clears throat> Excuse me. You talk about the women and the and the impact of women in the voting cycle in 2018 for the midterms. The you know when when Rich brings up the uh, the Harkin Grassley dichotomy, yep. are the women there concerned? Because my experience in Iowa has been that they are even the Democrats tend to be very family-oriented. They tend to be more pro-life than pro-choice. And with the rash of challenges to Roe versus Wade, does this make your urban uh, your urban appeal, can you, can you parlay that into some of the more rural areas that included in your district? Obviously, the eastern and northern parts of that district. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think you're sh- seeing uh, women just haven't had a fair voice at the table, right? So if you take a look at in the state of Iowa, of the 50 senators, there's only 11 women, right? So that's one thing right there. We don't have an equal gender voice at the table. So that's one thing we need to change. But I think you're hearing more and more women that are like, you don't get to take those rights away from me, right? I don't want men or other people making decisions. And I continue to hear that with constituents from all parts of the state. So, again, I think there's an awakening. I think there's a movement. I am I am pro-life myself, but I am pro-choice for others. And I think you're going to hear that, right, kind of across the board. I think women are sick of you know, having things like Planned Parenthood and sex education money taken away, right? Um, They're tired of seeing uh, our teachers, you know, beaten up and collective bargaining and and lack of funding being taken away. So those are the things that are important to women. And, you know, there's been a lot of sexual harassment, right, right, that has gone on in the GOP. And I think people want more transparency with some of that stuff, too. So, but but here's a question I have for you, though, Trish, is... Which is going to be the stronger factor? I mean, you're talking about an area that is that is widely known to be uh, devoutly religious, uh, devoutly centered around the family. Which is going to be the bigger influence, the voice of women's rights or the voice of the church? Well, personally, I believe both need to coexist. I mean, that that's just, I can speak for myself. That, this is obviously a a very um, sensitive subject, but I definitely think religious beliefs are 100% warranted and right. I believe a woman's choice to make the right decision for her body and um, her personal situation is also the right choice, but neither of those get to be forced upon one another, if you will. Um, So, you know, it is, it's a good thought and a good question, but gosh, I think it was John Delaney, you know, was talking a little bit about how he was super involved in his church, and he's on the board there and and does a whole bunch of stuff, but that he, 
you know, believes that religion and state, I mean, there's a separation there and there, there needs to be for certain reasons. And that's at least uh, from my standing, kind of what, what I believe in as far as what happens at the polls. I'm not a mind reader in 2020. Alan Moore, question for Trisha Gavin, candidate for state Senate in Iowa. Yeah, hello, Trisha. Um, a question for you. I'm, I'm intrigued with your the the fact that you are personally pro-life um, and, and pro-choice for others. Have you uh, established for yourself a position on, on the so-called Hyde Amendment on using public funds to pay for um, – uh, for for women to have uh, to, to utilize their choice, you know, I I haven't like formulated a specific, um, I guess, opinion on that necessarily. Funds aren't being used for it right now, um, but I, I I think I think that's probably appropriate um, because there is such a dichotomy there. Um, but I definitely think. Having things like sex education, having STD screenings, having the educational components that come with the other layers of Planned Parenthood uh, are definitely necessary and needed. And they fill a really big gap in society. Um, You know, so that's kind of I guess that's where I stand. No, I'm sure you're aware that 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 candidate Biden, um, Vice President Biden, um, sort of surprised people after almost 40 years um, uh, on that very issue. He he flipped uh, fairly recently and 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 suddenly decided that it was time to get rid of the so-called Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funds from being used um, uh, for abortion. And he said, yeah, I always defended that, but now it's time to change. And the and then the question is for a Catholic like him, uh, what does this do to other Catholics who've always many of whom have mm-hmm. are, are like you, they they believe that 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 uh, that choice should be allowed, but that people or whatever their belief, whether it's religious based or secular, mm-hmm. doesn't it, it doesn't matter, who don't believe that those who feel so strongly. Uh, in in their in their opposition uh, to abortion rights, that they that they should have to have their taxpayer daughter dollars yeah. used for that. So, and I, and I'm I not trying I'm not trying to smoke you out. I was just curious as to how you had navigated that because uh, it's a it's a challenging issue, um, and uh, and Biden was finding himself kind of lonely out there uh, in his long held position, and finally flipped. I and, mean, Trish, I guess I guess. The, the short question to this is, can can you walk that tight line? Absolutely. I think it's a fair question. And, and the reason I say that, too, is, I mean, I was, I was born and raised Catholic, you know, so I definitely, um, I, un, that's why I can understand and appreciate both sides, right? I think each voice has to have a spot at the table, and I think choice needs to be allowed, but whether or not you give your money to something like that um, is a whole different story, but I definitely think the option needs to be on the table should somebody need to leverage that. Right. And, and when I say pro-life myself, if my life is in danger or my child's life, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not a black and white issue, right? And so that's why I think a lot of people don't dig far enough into this to really see and also see it from the women's perspective, if you will. I mean, it's a very good question when it comes to funding, though. 
Yeah, Dan. And, and just to expand on that, I mean, even though uh, Alan was kind of casually talking about uh, uh, Vice President Biden's uh, transition from being in favor of the Hyde Amendment to uh, then, as he stated, his position being that seeing abortion care as part of the overall health care narrative for Americans, meaning that it is health care. And as you correctly described, Tricia, the in some cases, some of those are pretty horrific choices that might need to be made, that the life of the mother versus the life of the fetus could involve a an abortion and whether or not government funding is involved for the women who can who can only get medical care under government auspices. And that is a challenging question. Yeah, I, I, it's and it's one if you look in the state of Iowa right now, you know, if I hope that I have the honor to be elected, there's a lot of stuff that the Democratic Party is going to have to do over the next two years to lay groundwork because we've got a lot of work to flip the house, right? And at least make it so that there's at least a 50-50 voice. I, I think everybody should have a voice at the table. What is the headcount right, currently in Iowa? Um, oh, gosh. I don't, oh, I don't have the numbers right here. But it's more than what we will be making up on the, the house side. We might be able to get it this year um, based on intel that I have. But I don't, I don't know that, that the Senate numbers are looking as, Strong. How how is the National Democratic Party uh, looking as far as the the help at that level? I I know somebody who's worked in national mm-hmm. politics often and been in many many states and electoral cycles. Uh, often the National Democratic Party pays attention to uh, presidential races uh, and Senate races and occasionally House races, but the the uh, the the local legislature is occasionally overlooked. So is Washington helping you out? I, I, I don't know. The local Iowa Democratic Party um, on a any candidate that's running um, prior to the primary, they will give equal support, if you will. So, yes, they have been wonderful to any candidate that is looking to run. And this position that I'm running in will definitely have a primary. Hey, Tricia, let, let's let's go from the social issue. Let's talk economics here for a second. Uh Farm subsidies. You've got also problems with tariffs on a lot of the agricultural products that are coming there out of areas surrounding and maybe including your district. Uh, how how hard are the tariffs hitting the areas around you? And number two, how do you how do you fight against? continuously closing family farms and keeping them alive what how does that how does the state level deal with those situations well that's an interesting question so i have a couple of friends you know that have family farms and you see a lot of the you know yeah the mid-sized family farms going away and the bigger ones growing right um so, yeah, I think it's hit people on, uh, you know, you'll hear from presidential candidates that come in like, you know, President Trump is the worst president farmers have, you know, ever experienced, you know. And I definitely think there is some truth to that. Um, you're starting to hear them speak up a little bit more about how it's hitting the bottom line. There's also other issues impacting our farmers, such as mental health crisis, right? So. Um, we're not getting enough healthcare services out to them just as they're dealing with a lot of these hardships, too. So that's another thing I definitely want to focus on. Um, but there's no doubt that 
that's our top economic driver, and we need to do everything that we possibly can to make sure our farmers are not hurting. Right. Would you, well, Trisha, let me ask you this question. Would you support uh, the governor in calling for the continuation of uh, farm subsidies as as they uh, relate to agricultural products in your state? I, you know, obviously we don't want to have to go there if we don't have to, right? Um, we we want everything to be firing on all cylinders, but, um, you know, I guess whatever whatever gets us to the next year and the next crop session where we can uh, make it as a state, I guess, you know, obviously I'm in support of, but I, I, I wish we didn't, we didn't have to get to that point. Are they, are the, are the tariffs hurting the district around you? You know, I'm in, so I'm in just West of Des Moines. So it's basically West Des Moines, Waukee, Clive and Windsor Heights. Um, so we are definitely kind of an urban area. Um, so there's not so much specifically in District uh, 22 per se. Okay. Uh, Trish, one last question for you uh, before before we let you go. Is if you had one message to get out to the voters of the 22nd Senate District there in Des Moines, what would you tell them? Well, um you know, I am here 100% to support every single uh, Iowan, regardless of party line. Um, I want to help expand women's health care. I want to invest more in K-12 through schooling and job training. I want to protect the civil rights of all Iowans. I definitely want to improve water quality. Uh, we rank 41st in that right now. And we all need access to uh, affordable housing and health care. So I, I'm here to support everyone, and I would be honored to have everyone's vote and support going into 2020. Very good. Very good. Trisha Gavin, thank you, my friend. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good one. Good luck, We'll talk Trisha. to you. Yeah. Uh, that being the case, uh, we got a couple of minutes left here uh, in, in the cast here. Uh, she's got a... She's got a. Uh, that's a tough. That's a tough place to be, a moderate Democrat in a really blood red state. Like it's not a blood red state. It, it, you got you got a majority. You got over sixty percent Republicans in the Senate. Am I wrong? So, hey, so and she's taken on the president of the Senate in her yeah in, 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 in her, a race right. Um, if we only have a couple of minutes, do we want to say a word or two about the debates? Uh, you see, I, I I didn't hear the I didn't hear the show last week. I am guilty. I did not listen to the show. I heard that I was told by our producer Eric Thomas that we really covered them really well last week, and I didn't want to get into them. But I host you don't listen. I understand how it is. I, that's not true. <laughs> I was in a foreign country. Come on. Uh, no, and, and, I, and just, tomorrow night. And tomorrow night is night, a debate. And, yeah, that's yep. true. I mean, are we? What, what do you expect out of the debate tomorrow night? I mean, uh, I mean, it's, it, this is basically. Spring training. A so, Democrat's going to win the debate. So you, you know something, dude. Really? So you got a half a dozen. Jackass. You got a half a dozen uh, candidates who are going to survive this debate for sure. Uh, they're going to have the dough, and the others uh, are going to have to swing for the fences and hope to hope to connect, hope to make a point, hope to get into the news. And so it'll be an interesting scramble. They, they've only got ten or twelve minutes per person. Uh, and you got a, a whole team from NBC, so yeah. 
I I I think it'll be a a, a friend of mine, a, an entertaining uh, exercise. A friend of mine of from the Democratic Party. A friend of mine from the Democratic Party used the analogy that the next two days are going to be the Democratic presidential combine, like the NFL combine. <laughs> I thought that was a great analogy. I mean, theoretically, it's true. You get a few minutes to show off your wares. You got everybody looking at you. You're trying to get the nod for the for the draft pick or the recruitment. And either you either stay, get cut, and go home. Yeah, that's how this works. Are we? Are we talking? No, no. Let's. No, let, oh, come on. That's a cute analogy. Yeah, if everyone was looking to do their best and be drafted by the by the team with the highest pick, that's not necessarily what's going to happen. I hope it is. Um, unfortunately, there might be some people out there making noise that just want to make noise for the sake of making noise that can eat up some of the oxygen. Uh, from the from the more legitimate candidates. I mean, who on just joined? Who just joined? What Democrat just joined yesterday? Uh, that I saw. I mean, there's so many of them. I can't see all. I of actually them. can't remember. I know somebody Ooh, did just I, join I, yesterday. Former congressman, right? I didn't see it. Yeah, no, somebody I did just join. But somebody just joined, and, it didn't and again, make my radar. <laughs> he was also obviously not in the debates, and that's part of the point. There's 23, 24 people running now. I think that makes 24. Uh, Does this shorten? The, do they shorten the field after after Thursday? Depending on how big a mess it is, I have no doubt that the Democratic Party will likely have uh, some sort of noise about making uh, widowing the field. However, the Democratic Party, being the Democratic Party and the the great line, uh, Will Rogers line, which is always true, I don't belong to any organized political party, I'm a Democrat, right. um, is still true. So the 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 front runners are still going to need to be the front runners. And there is some actual news there amongst the front runners, including Elizabeth Warren continuing to move forward and Pete Beto, uh Pete, Mayor, Pete, Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete, Pete uh, ha- dealing with a both a racial issue and a police issue back in, in at, and at his daytime job that he's he's struggling with, and well, it'll be interesting to see how it, how he handles it. And not to mention, uh, as Alan frequently points out, the uh, former Vice President Biden and his issues as far as occasionally leaving the script. And when he's on the script, he's been better. When he's left the script, he's occasionally gotten into trouble. So know, there's you, news you, to be had there. But no, there's there, also there is, so many people running that here's the, the thing mess is, is makes more news than the actual substantive issues. With the, with the exception being Elizabeth Warren, to her credit, she's getting more press for having you ideas than any candidate in my memory. You're not working for Joe Biden. You're working for Elizabeth Warren. I'm not look, looking for Elizabeth who, Warren, but she, she, she legitimately, her poll numbers are going up based on nothing other than her response to a question is, I have a plan for that. And it's not just made up willy-nilly. She legitimately does have a plan for that. I, does that remind you of any other woman candidate in, the, in American history who was had lots of answers for lots of different Policy questions, but had trouble relating. I mean, I don't. We'll I, I don't, don't want to we'll make. I don't want to mention any names. Thank God, Sharmal is not here because that might. She might have the answer. And let's be clear: trouble relating and uh, and pity that Sharmal is here. By the way, we're talking here, about. By the way, we're talking about Hillary Clinton. Right, and we're talking about Hillary. And, and a bunch I of guys talking that. about Hillary Clinton. Elizabeth Warren is not Hillary Clinton. She's an Okie. She she got where she is. She, she's about as Oklahoma. Oh, come on. It's where she's, she's from. Got, she's got a. She's got a. That's like saying Bernie Sanders is from is a Vermonter. She is literally, is literally a Green Mountain boy. She is literally a bootstraps 
woman who got there where she is through a lot of hard work, and she transitioned from being a Rich. Republican to be being a Democrat based on the research she did as an academic. There, there is a lot to, t- to take hold of, and I really hope the issues end up winning the day. I am worried that some be, that there are going to be more stunts at play since the field is so large, and if the stunts win the day, it's going to be a giant annoyance for people who care about actual right, We got to go. We got to go. Uh... We'll take this up. We'll do post-mortem next week when we have the broadcast. Uh, on behalf of Rich Rubino, Sharmachari, who are on the big screen, uh, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner here in studio with me. Charlie Bernie running the running the board and Eric Thomas, our ever, ever vigilant producer. I'm your host, Monterey, Jess Russell. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook. You can also follow us. Uh, by emailing me any thoughts, concerns, gripes, or bitches, justin at backroompolitics.org. And you also download us as a podcast on your favorite podcast service. Have a great week, America. We'll see you.